HubSpot will have periods of growth, hit a ceiling, then figure out how to break through that ceiling until they hit the next one. So the same could be said for most companies. However, it's rare for one person, outside of the founders anyways, to experience so many of those cycles. Megan Keeney Anderson has been with HubSpot for nine years. She came in as a member of the marketing team through an acquisition in 2011, and now she's VP of marketing, overseeing the editorial, product marketing, and the HubSpot Academy teams. Throughout HubSpot's impressive growth over the last nine years, Megan has grown and stretched right alongside of it. In our conversation, she shares what essentially amounts to the oral history of marketing at HubSpot. This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers, the ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. I'm, I am I just hit nine. Wow. Like literally this month I hit nine. Well, congratulations. Uh, so next year will be the grand decade. Yeah, it, it flew. Uh, I did not, I didn't expect to be here this long, but also it just feels like I've been at three or four different companies because yeah, of sure, how much imagine. HubSpot has changed yeah. as we've scaled. And so, but yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. Nine years is, uh, is, is a big chunk of your life. That was a question I was going to ask was that you've been there for, for nine years and early on, it was, you know, you were there from, from startup to IPO, much different phase than where HubSpot is now. I think Halligan has called it like a, a scale up, if he still calls it that, mm-hmm. rather than a startup. Yeah. So obviously, the company has matured. Your role obviously has changed over the years. Like just from a personal growth standpoint and professional development, where like, how are you challenged differently today than maybe you were in like the startup to IPO days? Yeah. So, I mean, it's different is the key word, right? So every different era of a company brings an entirely new set of challenges. And when you're growing up inside of it and you're not sort of applying to that job fresh, you're sort of trying to learn those things as you go. And you're inherently coming to that new challenge or that new area of focus without a lot of skill set. So, for example, I've progressed at HubSpot from, I started as, uh, well, I came to HubSpot through an acquisition and uh, was, I think I was sort of a surprise. Uh, and so they didn't exactly <laughs> have a role right? for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, at Performable, I was sort of a, a, you know, solo marketer, jack of all trades, and then landed in what was then the biggest marketing team I had ever seen, which was <laughs> 20 people. Um, fast forward to today, the marketing team at HubSpot is, is well over 200 and, um, and, has all sorts of specialization and uh, expertise across across it. So I started at HubSpot fresh off the acquisition, really focused as an individual contributor on product rollouts and product launches and communications. And that kind of evolved into a more mature product marketing um, right. discipline. And then I evolved when there were some changes in the org to expand and take in take on the content team. Uh, and then that evolved again to take on Academy and uh, sort of our educational arm. And then as recently as a, a couple of years ago now, that expanded again to take on um, our full brand and um, sort of communication and editorial challenge uh, channels in our creative team. So at each of those 
expansions, I I went into that new role as as certainly qualified, but but certainly also underqualified for the role. Right, uh, right. You know, it was definitely uh, filling, you know, stretching into potential rather than coming with a full um, backlog of experience. And so I think the biggest challenge here, which is is also the reason why I've stayed for so long, is just that at every at every turn you're having to to sort of evolve with the company and with the market and so it wasn't just my roles that was changing over the course of that time it was actually you know the entire industry and the business i mean huswat has a radically different go-to-market strategy today than it did when i first started um and we've gone from a single product company to a multi-product company we've gone from a largely north american based uh customer base to a global customer base uh, and so all of those changes mean that you're always a little bit over your head. Um, <laughs> like the way and, you put that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so that, that's meant I had to stretch a lot. Um, and, you know, the, that can come with some moments of, of you know, deep humility <laughs> over, like, I actually had one yesterday. I, I um so I've been doing more with brand advertising for HubSpot. We've always been really focused on performance-driven advertising. So um, search ads, uh, sure. direct response ads, that kind of thing. We're getting doing a little bit more with just straight awareness level advertising. And God, if that's hard to measure. There's just so more, there's just far fewer options for how you actually measure the impact of awareness level advertising which means it's harder to know if you're making the right decisions right because you're not necessarily Um, looking for a website visit or a download right exactly and even if you were the connection between you know we've got the industry's gotten better but the connection between seeing that billboard or hearing that podcast ad and and getting to the website is a little bit more tenuous and so even just yesterday i was like out on LinkedIn, you know, asking, does anybody know who anyone who's really good at brand advertising? Um, specifically, because I want to know about like attribution and reporting and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, that's a, a, a kind of like a weird humbling thing for um, for a VP of marketing to right, go out yeah. and like ask, ask <laughs> the masses of like, hey, there's this big, you know, there's this knowledge gap that I have. Um, and I have it partially because I you know, I grew up with HubSpot and we never did a lot of brand advertising. Whereas if I had been at a different company where that was much more of the bread and butter, I would have learned sure. that along the way. Sure. So I think that's kind of the, um, that's been the, the fun part and also the stressful part on the flip side of that, that is like, how do you stay sharp enough and like keep learning as you evolve in your role? Right. I, I like that you went there because if you didn't, I was going to, which was like the uh, the self-doubt that comes, that naturally comes with that, right? And and how like as a VP of marketing at HubSpot, the size that HubSpot is, it, it can, it can from an outsider's perspective, it can seem like, wow, Megan Keeney Anderson has it all together, which, which you know, you, you certainly do, right? You wouldn't be in the position that you are for as long as you are if you didn't. But it's easy for people to think that and be like, man, ah, I... Uh, th- all these people around me are just like they they just know what they're doing and I have no clue and and uh and throughout your career you're going it, through periods of growth you're going to go through that right yeah and social media doesn't help with that by the way no. like you you get you're just talking about this like you get that slice of this person at their best um the greatest you don't hits. see yeah. the bad days or yeah um you don't see the failures uh outwardly and so 
yeah, I think it, it I think it contributes towards this lack of sharing across businesses. Um, I was talking with um, one of the other VPs of marketing the other day, and I think um, when you're a startup, there's a ton of sharing of knowledge. I mean, because you're all kind of uh-huh. in over your heads. And so I remember when I was in the startup stage and um, at, at certainly at Performable, um, but also in the early days at HubSpot, how much how much sharing there was. I could reach out to anybody in the startup community and like trade template sheets and sure. ideas and things like that. And then as the company gets bigger and bigger, I think there's just inherently less sharing when you are a scale up or beyond that, an enterprise company um, across different uh, across the industry. Why is that? Is there more uh, so, red tape or is it just like the competition is stiffer? Like, why is that? Do you think? I was trying to think about it. I think there's, I think some of it is perception. I think that there's like a hesitance to give away pro- a competitive sure. edge or yeah. like proprietary experiments because um, the stakes get bigger. Yep. Um, whereas if you fail, you know, if somebody, everybody's not copying everybody at the startup level. And if you fail at something, it's not that big of a deal. Um, but so I think the stakes are higher and that leads people to be a little bit more insular. I also think it's just like your teams get bigger. And you have more of those resources inside of your company. And so you go to your peers and you go to your colleagues for that, but you stop going to the outside world. Um, And so I think that it's partially, um, you know, ego and protectiveness as you get bigger. And it's partially just ingrained in how insular uh, bigger companies can get. Right. That makes sense. Um, so uh, the for the rest of our, our our chat here, I've kind of broken it up into three different segments that I think uh, sort of the the di- the three disciplines behind growth. The first one being alignment. Uh, so we'll call segment one just align, which is more about like all about your team, setting expectations, goals, and that kind of thing. So as you were just uh, sharing earlier, you oversee multiple functions within marketing now right so that and that's grown over the years that's evolved over the years so what's the approach to planning like you know whether that's quarterly or annually when you have multiple functions that you're overseeing obviously you're relying on you know the executive team as well as you know sort of bottoms up and hearing from multiple teams and stakeholders involved but like just talk about the approach to to planning when you're overseeing multiple functions like that yeah, so the planning year um, really kicks off in um, uh, September, October for us. Um, we are learning throughout the entire year, and we're sort of like making note of things that we're figuring out and places where we feel like there's opportunity for leverage in any of these teams. And then that all sort of gets, we we execute on some of that on an ongoing basis, but the bigger things sort of get consolidated into our plan for the following year, which kicks off in, um, say, September, October. Um, that is where we get together as a leadership team on the marketing side and figure out what have we learned this year? What are some of the biggest opportunities ahead of us for arbitrage and for growth? And so where do we want to make our biggest strategic bets for new things that we're going to do? Uh, so in any year, there's stuff that you'll just continue because it's working and you'll optimize it. But then there's also sort of this this room for the places where you want to either double down or uh, start anew. And so that stuff gets sorted out in a, um, in a week-long kind of planning session that we have both with the kind of director and above level of our team and then kind of a follow-on uh, tighter synthesis of that with our 
marketing leadership team. That is then followed with um, budgeting. So once we figure sure. out what are the strategic bets we want to make, that then helps us figure out, uh, okay, well, where are we going to put our resources? And by resources, I don't just mean program spend, but I also mean headcount. I mean um, assigning uh, creative uh, resources and you know uh, dedicating those people to particular initiatives or efforts. Um, and so the budget planning cycle kind of comes on the heel of the strategic planning cycle. And then in parallel to that, our product compass is being developed uh, by the product team. So they will work on based on, you know, uh, inputs from our customers, from where we want the business to grow. They'll make a kind of large list of all the features and new products we could create in the coming year. Um, that is then um, basically voted on uh, in terms of what is the highest impact for our customers and for the business. And so we kind of narrow down that to get more focus to our product direction. Um, and then those two things intersect, right? So if the product compass means we're going to enter into a new space or develop a new tier, then marketing, then that's also got to be a marketing bet. Um, and we build a editorial calendar around mm -hmm. that for the stories that we want to tell, how that all kind of folds up into the brand. So it is a, uh, it is a multi-layered, but somehow <laughs> coordinated orchestra that, that really heats up towards the end of the summer and gets worked out and refined through the back half of the year. So what, what inputs are defining what the strategic bets you're going to make? Obviously data, right? But uh, then there's going to be things yeah. like, like you said, when you're starting anew, there's probably not a ton of data that you're going off of, right? There's just some, some bets that, you know, you're making educated guesses, whether that's the brand um, advertising that you were just mentioning before. So what kind of like different inputs are you using in the team, the whole team using to, to make those strategic bets? So some of them are, are, in, are formed based by, based on what are the company goals, right? So and we're not, I know we're not talking numbers in this, uh, and I can't talk numbers in many ways, but what are we trying to get to next year from a revenue standpoint? Um, that sometimes often informs the product direction, which often informs the go to market plan for, um, for our marketing teams. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. That is a backwards math equation, sure, yep. uh, that we figure out how to line up the resources for the new stuff, for the bigger bets that we're making, we're looking for, um, we're looking for things like uh, new distribution routes. Uh, so we have kind of our core bread and butter. We've got search, we've got email, we've got paid. Is there something that would open up an entirely new distribution route, a partnership or an integration that could help us uh, create a new conduit through which people discover us for uh, not a lot of resources or pain? Um, so we look for arbitrage opportunities there. We look for um, uh, things that are major customer pain points and how do we resolve those. So there's probably like a few different categories of things that we will consider as part of, um, you know, uh, as part of building out a plan for the coming sure. year. And we surface stuff through the teams. I mean, the smartest people are going to be the people who are closest to the work and see an opportunity either to drive efficiency within our own operations, to find better distribution for um, our content and, you know, fuller conduits to get people into HubSpot um, or some other like major customer need or point of friction. Uh, and so we gather all of that and then it's just this winnowing down process of what has the highest impact for the most reasonable uh, sure. effort put out. 
uh, and we just get aligned on so what are going to be the handful of things that we're going to put everything behind. Um, it's it's a painful process. It's not a fun process because, uh, well, the first part's fun. The first part where it's like everybody is submitting their ideas and we start to think about all the products we could make, all the new shows we could develop, all of that, that part's fun. But then it's like winnowing that down is hard because you are leaving really good ideas on the table for the sake of focus. Um, and focus has has never been our strong suit, um, but has always been our deliverance. Like it's always been the thing that when we have a really strong high impact effort, it's because all focus was put on it. When we failed, it's because we've been distracted by too many different side projects. Right, right. The ideas and all that stuff can be super energizing. And then yeah, the prioritization can sometimes be frustrating for some, right? When it's when it's things that you feel strongly about. Um, So I I can, I can empathize in in, in some regard to that. Um, You mentioned the goal, uh, uh, like you said, like, you know, the, the backwards math equation of the company's goals. Um, I'm curious, like how, how, the, how do goals sort of cascade down throughout the team? Because obviously you as a VP, you're going to have your, you know, you're going to be tied to certain performance goals, directors. Um, how far does that cascade down Do you know, to, to, to individual teams, whether that's output goals, like s- things that we want launched or specific projects that they want to get off the ground. Like how does the overall goal structure work, uh, you know, for a team of that size and how do you sort of initiate that? Yeah, so we um, we start with the company level goals, uh, and we try to make sure that everything, all the way down to like the tiniest uh, projects, are somehow um, tied back to those company goals. Right. And so it may be a, an aspect of them that that is removed a couple of times, but that you should every member of the team, whether you are a VP or an intern, should be able to point to this is what um, this effort is moving forward as a company. And that's important. Uh, and we haven't always had that. But again, like it helps you with prioritization and it helps you m- make sure that you're investing in the right things. Because even, you know, seemingly small projects will will distract from other things and will pull resources from other things. Um, so I, I think HubSpot has been really good at transparency from the like executive level, meaning literally meaning that the two co-founders and president and chief financial officer all the way down to, um, you know, the, the entry level individual contributor. I think we has done a really nice job of being really clear about what the goals are and making sure that every team sort of, uh, has a role in that. We, so individual teams will have their own goals that they, make projections off of and report on, on, you know, a regular basis. But again, those goals need to be a subset of a larger target. Sure. What is like that reporting exercise look like? Is there, uh, do, do people submit uh, a deck once a month? Is there a meeting? Is it a quarterly thing? Like, what does that report exercise look like? So we have um, a, we have quarterly business reviews. Uh, and we take different cuts of those quarterly business reviews. One of them is a product-focused quarterly business review. One of them is a customer-focused one mm-hmm. um, to, to where we dive into, like, how how are the customers doing? Where are they seeing friction? Like, we, we take their biggest pain points and we'll try to attack them. We usually have a customer panel for that come in. Um, and then we'll have, like, a go-to-market 
quarterly business review. And in that, there'll be certainly there'll be a deck and a collection of reports um, that will look at, you know, what are the key things that are driving business today? Um, and it ha- will look at the, the potential potholes, right? So we know which are the channels um, that bring us the greatest. Now, I mean, speaking plainly, organic is a huge channel for us. Right. Search search is a huge channel for us. So we're constantly looking for um, indications that search may be changing or that, um, you know, some of our other channels may be changing to be able to catch and prevent potholes before they happen. Um, So we've got kind of a pothole prevention version of that deck as well that just looks at the health of those channels to say, hey, uh, you know, email delivery rate seems like it's falling. Um, This is just a you know, arbitrary example, but like what's going on there, let's dive into that to try to prevent that from becoming a bigger problem. So there's sort of the proactive numbers of how we're doing on demand every month and every quarter, but then there's also a look at just the health of the pillars of our growth um, and and where we're losing uh, people. I love power prevention. I I love that that name. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then... um, and then individual teams will kind of have, we leave it up to the individual teams to have their yeah. own kind of reporting cadence, whatever mm-hmm. it makes sense. So product marketing, for example, they operate largely on a, um, a large scale initiative or launch cadence. So they're not going to report every month what's going sure. on, but they will do sort of um, day of launch, week after launch, month after in the 90 day reporting of a given major launch. Right. Right. So the data is pretty accessible across the team, right? Because I, in in so many companies, there's there's often a layer of complexity in order to sometimes even get to the data, right? Whether you need to put in a request to a data analyst, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, or or some people just they're looking at spreadsheets and they're not sure what how to make heads or tails of anything. So it sounds like the data must be fairly accessible, right, to to all the teams and individual contributors. The, you just hit the nail on the head. The data is accessible. The insights aren't always. Right. So um, that's where some of the communications and uh, and intelligence needs to come in. Of like, look, anybody can go into our um, our own system in HubSpot or any of the like um, analytics to- reporting tools that we use and pull a report. But knowing mm-hmm. um, what you're looking at and knowing what insights to glean from that needs a little bit of translation. And so that's where some of the QBRs and uh, some of the work of managers and directors comes in to be able to help give context around, okay, this number was up this month. What does that mean? And how do, what do we attribute that to? And is that significant or not? Right. Um, that is an education, right? I think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I'll credit this this place too is it does a nice job of um or at least for me has done a really nice job of teaching just the fundamentals of SaaS economics and um what to look for in these things but that has come or intentionally um and like you know in in peer-led classes or in asking the questions or in catching those moments in marketing team meetings to really sort of not only show the chart, but actually explain what's behind it and why it matters. Uh, I think, you know, it's one of the big leadership takeaways that I've gotten is that you really have to provide that context to make data real for people. Otherwise, they're just looking at right. what direction is the line going. Right. They're looking at a slide deck or they're looking at a spreadsheet. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that's actually a good segue into the second segment, which is all about analysis. So all about how you identify opportunities and the team finds ways to improve which 
on the back of that pothole prevention uh, sort of exercise, I, th- I, th- I think is great. So there, there has to be a level of flexibility, right, within the team. Obviously, a company like HubSpot, any company to be successful has to adhere to priorities, right? They have their strategy, they have goals, they prioritize projects and you stick to that. But there has to be a level of flexibility, right? So when you find things, whether that's an email open rate or I know HubSpot's done a lot with um, optimizing old blog posts and things like that. Yeah. Um, So there has to be a level of flexibility, right? With the team where you're kind of making adjustments on the fly uh, Mm -hmm. to shift resources, to address certain areas. So just talk about that for a sec. Yeah, I mean, it's within teams, there's a, a pretty heavy experimental c- culture here. Mm-hmm. So um, every team is always trying to find a way to optimize what they're doing. So, for example, um, you, you mentioned the the content optimization uh, experiment, which was is now sort of like ancient canon and history at HubSpot that <laughs> made a massive difference. And so for your listeners, I'll just kind of quickly go through it. We um, made a discovery, and by we, I mean a woman on our content team named Pam Vaughn made a discovery several years ago now where she took a look at the analytics and and reporting, and she noticed that, like, listen, in a given month, 70% of the traffic that we're going to get that month is coming from old content. She just noticed this by looking, by being inquisitive and looking at the data. And then she asked the question, what does that mean? And what she realized when she asked that question is our entire team is backwards because 70% of the traffic we had in a given month was coming from old content and 0% of our team was focused on old content. (laughs) And that's just ass backwards. And so they made a shift. They started as an experiment. They said, look, we've got four bloggers at this point. If we took one of them and pulled them off of this, this endless conveyor belt of having to turn out new content and instead focus them on how do you optimize posts that were written a month ago, a year ago, five years ago to make sure that the data is up to date in them, that the conversion paths are strong, that they're optimized not for the SEO rules of five years ago, but for the SEO rules of today, what would it do? And it was one of the most meaningful changes to our content strategy that we've ever done. We saw you know, within a a couple of months, like a massive uptick in both the organic traffic coming through those old blog posts and also the conversion rates of them. Uh, And so then having done that pilot, it got and seen success. We very quickly flipped that into a new new mode of operation for that team. Um, And so that's, we try to set up individual teams to always look for efficiencies and um, areas to optimize and to run a quick experiment. And if they can find it, then roll it out in a much larger way. Um, and so like one, you know, one was just how it just happened, uh, yesterday, uh, the dev team made a slight tweak to the, uh, sign up flow for, for booking meetings with us and was able to increase conversions by like 53%, uh, with, with that experiment. And so, you better believe that they're going to roll that out in, you know, across other um, similar like situations and try to measure that. But it's, it's really like a blend of empowerment and a culture of experimentation. One thing that we have done that I've liked a lot is um, one of the members of the team runs um, 
a quarterly event called Inside Marketing where we get to show off some of those experiments to the rest of the company. So then our services people can teach that to our customers and our product team can see which way we're sure. we're pushing our own software. And it creates this forum for those experiments. So it, it's a bit of an incentive to try to you know, to make sure that you are experimenting and trying new things. Yeah, I was just going to ask because back when, which fun fact for the listeners, Pam Vaughn was actually guest number one on Ground Up 65 <laughs> episodes ago. Go listen to that podcast. <laughs> 65 episodes ago. And I'm fairly yeah. certain, it was a while ago, but I'm fairly certain she talked about this project. Um, but back then, HubSpot was smaller. You weren't small, mm-hmm. um, but smaller, probably easier to yeah. circulate those kinds of successes and projects. So like you kind of already touched on this with the inside marketing, um, but when teams are hitting on these efficiencies or optimizations, uh, how, how is that communicated company wide where somebody in a team in Dublin or, or, or somebody else can take something from that and run something similar on their teams? Yeah, you have to work at it as a larger company. You've got to be really intentional about it because it's so easy for it to not happen. Right. Um, when you've got as many people on not only on our marketing team, but across our company as we do now, uh, there's just this real uh, gravitational pull to sort of staying in your own lane and, and working with your own team. Um, and so you it's, it's important to set up things like inside marketing or um, to, you know, have uh, cross cross team workshops and like future proofing exercises and things like that. Um, because you miss those opportunities as you get bigger. And I actually think that's why a lot of bigger companies slow down is you just, it goes back to the point I was making before of, uh, you're, you get these blinders and your world actually gets smaller as your company gets bigger, which is the strangest oxymoron ever. And so you have to really push against that and, uh, work to connect with not only other teams, but other, companies and um people in similar roles of you uh, across the industry right which can get trickier i'd imagine as you expand too, across different time zones and uh yeah the remote element too is you know plays a role as an additional wrinkle to the challenge as well um so d- digging deeper into the analysis part of it like what's one um you know what what's one channel or approach or campaign that works well today that maybe wasn't something HubSpot practiced, you know, five years ago? Yeah, I think, um, let's see. Well, without getting too meta, we've, we've definitely leaned into podcasts in the last uh, few years and have learned a lot about how podcasts operate. Um, And we've, we've, we took an experimental approach there. We launched uh, three different podcasts one was kind of your traditional brand podcast, so mm-hmm. uh, called The Grow Show, basically about topics that we care about, interview style with different companies. Um, one was more of a how-to podcast uh, called Skill Up. And then the third was sort of a kind of wacky mass audience, mass appeal podcast called Weird Work. Uh, and we intentionally chose three very different podcasts just to pit them against each other a little bit and see which one got the most traction, which one had better conversion rate back to our site, things like that. Because you don't think about podcasting as like a conversion driving thing. Um, But what we've learned is it actually can be. So for example, the big bet with SkillUp was that 
Google was going to get into transcribing podcasts and surfacing podcasts as part of their snippets and, and search engine results. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to get ahead of that. And so we actually used the same SEO insights that we use for our blog to inform what do we cover on skill up in a given region. Uh, and so the idea there was, can you make a podcast that would surface in search results? And can it be the right format to actually, uh, um, to actually be useful in that setting and then to, to drive people back to our academy for, for deeper learning. Um, and we found a decent conversion rate there for, you know, higher than we expected for people actually switching formats, going from audio to pulling up a screen and going to a website and like typing in an address. Um, so we've learned a lot about search and podcast behavior. And then we've also learned a lot about, you know, editorial shows and, what actually drives word of mouth there and how do you keep an editorial show fresh um, right. in a world that's getting more and more um, crowded. Right. Um, so, so that's been, we've been learning, I think a ton on the podcast side. Um, I think we're, we're now looking into uh, how do we take a show that did well in the U S and, or did well in English language and try to localize it into different languages um, because there's blue ocean, um, sure. in some other regions where there's less competition for the, um, for like the, the ranking lists, um, that you have in all these discovery apps. And so we're, we're playing around with that a little bit now too, is like, what does a regional specific podcast look like? Um, but that's been good. I think, you know, we merged and this gets a little bit into team structure, but we merged our SEO and our blogging team. Um, so that they more work cohesively around going after a particular topic um, and optimizing content for that. And that made a big difference in um, our ability to to drive organic traffic. And so we kind of like go through these patterns where we have growth, we hit a ceiling, and then we spend kind of like spin our wheels and, and run a bunch of experimentation to try to break through that ceiling. Something works until we hit the next ceiling. Right. Um, and that's that's really been the cycle Um since I've been here. And are you still the host of, of the growth show? Yeah. Yeah. Until they kick me off. <laughs> uh, we're off season right now. Um, because you know, f- from a resource standpoint, we're trying to, again, we're, we're playing shows off of each other and trying right. to find, trying to learn things as we grow. And so, um, the growth show is like a nice, reliable show. It's done, uh, well from an audience standpoint. Um, but we have, you know, we've, we've got limited resources in podcasting. So in order for us to try new shows, we have to put one on hiatus to try a new show. Sure. Uh, if, and if there's a partnership or something that opens up. So we're sort of laddering these shows off of each other a little bit. Um, so that one's off season right now. It'll probably come back. Uh, I actually don't know when it'll come back, that, um, but we'll we'll sort of build a year that way of layering these shows on top of each other. Are you doing any interviews for it now? Or do you know who you're going to cover yet for the next season? No, we haven't gotten into planning for it. Um, so we'll sit down and we'll talk about what we want the arc of the show to be. So one year we did all turnaround stories. Or, so companies that were sort of on the brink. And was that came the Narragansett back. year? The, the turnaround stories? Uh, that was. Narragansett Yeah, beer? that was the yeah. Narragansett year. Um, that's, a, that's a great one to listen to. Uh, that guy, Marcus, is awesome. And then one year we talked about um, uh, kind of the intersection. We, we interviewed a lot of B Corps and kind of talked about the intersection of principal and right. uh companies and so uh interviewed uh like hip camp and um a bunch of different like 
uh, oh, um, uh, Lemonade, I think, was one of them, like a bunch of different B Corps as sure. part of that season. Sure. Um, and the, the flip side of that question was, is there anything that HubSpot like, was working years ago that maybe as you've gotten bigger and as things have scaled, uh, you know, you've, you've kind of left behind or, or, or at least isn't as big a priority anymore? Uh, we've certainly changed our content strategy a ton. I mean, I think there was a time when HubSpot was, was big into the volume game because all the data showed us that, yeah. you know, the more posts that you write, the more volume, the more traffic you get. And that was both true and problematic, right? <laughs> uh, so we've, we sort of switched our strategy from volume to really being much more intentional about like less content, more, more traffic with less content. Uh, and the things that lean into more traffic with less content are being really intentional about structure, mm. not only the structure of the post, but also the structure of a collection of posts within a site and making sure to build, you've, you've probably heard like the pillar cluster sure, model, yeah. like mm -hmm. making sure to build a much clearer route, making sure to, um, solve for snippets and try to get into those. Um, and so our, I would say our content strategy has evolved a lot. Um, and we'll need to continue to evolve because Google and and every other discovery mechanism changes all the time. Um, the other strategy that's really evolved is social. So right. social mm -hmm. used to be much more of a pass-through channel. We would actually generate leads off social. And today, you know, most marketers know that social is much more of a walled garden. Mm -hmm. And so it, it had to shift from an acquisition channel to a brand channel and to um, dry, trying to drive engagement with content over trying to drive uh like on site over trying to drive click throughs um there are and i think there are signs that that's changing again i mean if you look at um facebook it is shifting or has shifted much more around groups and group membership and so you have to think about what that means for your social media strategy uh conversions i think are coming back on social because of things like messenger on facebook and um being able to actually pull uh forms into LinkedIn and things like that. Uh, so it's not that we've wholesale gotten rid of any one strategy. It's just that the strategies that we have today look radically different than the same strategy a few years ago. Right. 2013. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, we kind of cannibalized uh, the last segment, which was all about making adjustments. We kind of talked about that already. So I'll just leave it at, at, at the one question there is the challenge of you, we were talking about being flexible and fluid and, and finding more ways to be efficient. That has to be more challenging as the, as the team has gotten bigger and the company is getting bigger, mm -hmm. right? Um, to manage all of that. So yeah. uh, I, I guess just talk about that challenge and, and how, um, how, how the team is built to, to, uh, to sort of protect against that. Yeah, so it, it goes back to, it, so completely honestly, it just, it has gotten more challenging, I think. Um, it's everything that we do, we do with a global eye now. And so there's, there's a localization process. There's just more to do and to consider for, for getting things out the door. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a, a product launch, like a really good global product launch, uh, you know, you, you really need like four months to pull off some, like something that is big and global and high impact. Uh, and so, uh, and you need people to be able to pull that off. And so, yeah, like I think we're always trying to figure out how do we scale up a, our team in a way that 
um, will find efficiencies in the process, especially around creative, the creative team. So um, we have, we do almost everything in house. Um, We have developers and designers and video editors and producers and PMs um, all in house, which is amazing because it just means that they have an understanding of the brand. They're incredibly talented. Um, but we're just doing more than we ever have before. So how do we then enable the rest of the marketing team for all the design and uh, development needs that they have without getting distracted from our core priorities? Um, And so uh, some of that is like investing in brand infrastructure. So uh, setting aside some people to actually build out design systems and um, uh, templates that can be used and repurposed uh, a Rolodex of freelancers that are trusted and have already gone through kind of review and process with us. Uh, it's really become sort of this exercise in, in orchestrating, how do you move quickly as a, um, you know, 2000 person company or 200 person marketing team, uh, and, you know, make it seem like you're just as fast as you ever were, um, while dealing with the complexity of, um, of things like a global audience or um, multiple campaigns or channels at the same time. Uh, and, but I think that we're like, you know, it's funny, like in many ways, it's kind of what our software is trying to solve for, for customers too. Like how do you create this central system that everybody works out of and is um, empowering and enables people uh, and reduces friction in that workflow? Uh, we're, living that as a marketing team and sort of feeding that back into our product team as well. So I want to end here, which is, uh, and you don't have to share a numeric number if, if you can't, but just like from, from a general standpoint, what would you say is the most ambitious goal uh, for, for the marketing team this year? Uh, let's see. Um, okay. Our most ambitious goal, I won't, I won't throw numbers in here, but we are trying to crack the code of how do you be a software platform that is both for the three-person startup and the 2,000-person global publicly traded company. Like we, we want to be both things. We want to be the um, sort of company that, or sort of platform that you can get on really easily, but that it grows with you over time and you never outgrow us. Um, Brian Halligan, who's the CEO of HubSpot and founder, uh, co-founder talks a lot about like, uh, the tyranny of, or so that people say you can either be, uh, for small businesses or big businesses, you can either be easy or you can be powerful. Um, and it's not, you know, he didn't coin the, the term, but he talks about it a ton internally. And we're really trying to think about like both from a company level and at the marketing level, how do we get past the tyranny of or to the the audacity of and and trying to figure out is there a way to actually you know solve for the full spectrum of needs without shortchanging anyone along the way um and i think we can do it like the the i mean i'm obviously on the inside and optimistic but i think that uh seeing the the way that the software has been rolling out and 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 how sophisticated some of our marketing has has gotten, uh, it, it's really feeling like, and you know, the NPS levels of people who are you know free users on the free CRM, all right. the way up to the upmarket users right. on our Marketing Hub Enterprise, 
uh, it feels like we're making progress there, right? That it has become this more seamless experience. But that's just a very hard thing to do. Typically, you're moving in one direction. You're right. going from small to big, or you're going from easy to powerful, and we're just unwilling to uh, to give up where we came from. Right. And so I think that's the most audacious thing we're going after. What's interesting is if HubSpot just continues to build a tool to, that is useful for your own yourself as a company, right? Like. You, HubSpot was a yeah. startup, started small. You've continued to grow, growing into a bigger company, bigger into an enterprise. Um, and I think I read last year, right? Like HubSpot was using its now used like fully on its own product. Uh, yeah. And so, like, if you continue to build a product that works for HubSpot, I think that that probably gets you pretty close. That's a oh, way oversimplification. That's a really good point. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> it's it's funny. Like I. I just rolled that all out and that never even occurred to me. That's a really good point. <laughs> but, uh, but Megan, this was great. Thanks for coming out. This was like a, a, a history of marketing at HubSpot because you've been there for <laughs> 10 years now and you've seen so much um, of the marketing that we all remember, whether it's the blog in the early days and you've, you've sort of been there for, for it all or almost all of it. So A lot of it, yeah. It's been, it's been wild. It's been, a, it's been a fun ride and I'm like humbled and learning all the time and um you know hopefully getting better as i go i can imagine well, well thank you megan for coming on and sharing so much it's awesome to hang out with you for a bit john thanks for having me Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.